This is the first episode in a two-part series. There's discussion of crime scenes and violence, and use of terminology in some reports that audiences may consider outdated. This is The Fall Line. This story is complicated. There's no way around that. There are over 500 pages of police files, dozens of court records, and hundreds of news articles. There are crisscrossing threads, all meeting in the early 2000s, when our country faced post-9-11 immigration policies. And down south, after generations of bootlegging, some families in Northwest Georgia had shifted their efforts into the drug trade. First marijuana in the 1970s, and then cocaine, and then came the methamphetamine boom of the early 2000s. These storylines converge in a small mill town in Georgia, near the Alabama line, where an incredibly violent crime scene led to a series of high-profile arrests, federal indictments, and trials. But there's a simple place where we can start with a case that is both open and closed, with a woman whose name we don't know. We know who killed her, and why, and how, but not her name, or precise age, or exactly where she came from. Two other people died that same day. Of the three, only she remains unidentified to this day, because of where she was, and who she was, and what she did for a living, and how difficult those factors can make a positive ID. Now, 17 years later, there's little chance she'll be given back her name, despite law enforcement efforts, not unless the right combination of science and media coverage converge. We'll see what we can do in that latter area, but her likeness will need signal boosting all over the United States and beyond, and especially down in Cedartown, Georgia, but elsewhere too. Maybe that's where you come in. The young woman known as the Cedartown Jane Doe, or the Polk County Jane Doe, was killed by a stranger, or as good as, in a town where she had no connections. Her family most likely lived in another country, with no way to find out what happened to their loved one. She was a teenager, probably no more than 18. She was badly burned, and her physical description is limited, but she's listed as being five foot one and approximately 100 pounds. She had long black hair, brown eyes, and wore gold stud earrings. And she is one of the missing missing. Not reported. Not in the United States, at least. But someone, somewhere, wonders what became of her. Cedartown is the seat of Polk County in northwest Georgia. A town famous for its appearance in a country murder ballad, sung by outlaw country star Waylon Jennings, about a man who murders his wife. The song, called Cedartown, Georgia, ends with these words. Tonight I'll put her on a train for Georgia. Gonna be a lot of kinfolk squallin' and a-grievin', cause that Cedartown gal ain't breathin'. That song was written over 50 years ago by a woman named Sammy Smith. She likely picked the town for its lovely name and not for its reputation. In 1970, when Smith wrote that song, there were under 10,000 residents— 
and there was a lot of farmland and mills and ironworks. The perfect setting for a country song, but not a town that conjured violence. Not unless we go back far enough to when all that land was first the territory of the Muskegee Creek people and then the Cherokee people, and unseated when its inhabitants were forced onto the Trail of Tears. In its more recent history, Cedartown was above all a mill community. There were a number of manufacturers who created jobs in the area and built housing for their employees. So there were neighborhoods of identical houses, and the materials used were dependent on the decade they were commissioned. The West Georgia Heritage Trail website named Cedartown Cotton Manufacturing Company, Paragon, Standard Cotton Mills, Juanetta Knitting Mills, and the Josephine Mills, plus Gildan Incorporated, and perhaps most importantly, Goodyear. Goodyear Mills are especially essential to this story. Though the mill was closed by 2003 when the Cedartown Jane Doe died, the neighborhood where she was found is still called the Goodyear Village. It's full of small, sturdy, neat houses where, per the website, 50% of the mill's workers once lived. And in that neighborhood, at the tail end of the 20th century, decades after Waylon Jennings sang about Cedartown, there was trouble. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, Northwest Georgia became the heart of Georgia's burgeoning methamphetamine production, and everything changed. In Polk, in Cedartown, in Floyd County, and dozens of rural towns that pale against the brighter map points of Athens or Savannah or Atlanta. We start our story on September 16th, 2003, a Tuesday. It was 80 degrees that afternoon. Hot for most other places, but nothing unusual for fall in the southeast. There was no rain. It was just a little after 1 p.m., still during the school day. Mostly, Cedartown residents were still at work. On 7th Street, in the Goodyear Village, things were probably quiet. Then, as now, its residential road lined with small homes, most of which were built before World War II. Those houses sit close together, with thin strips of yard in between. They're close enough that, on a clear afternoon, it's easy to see what's happening up and down the block. That's probably why the fire was spotted quickly, as the smoke drifted from yard to yard, and a neighbor called 911. The earliest official record of the fire at 506 7th Street comes at 1.24 p.m., when dispatch requested both police and fire and rescue to the scene. By 129, Officer John Pilgrim had arrived. According to the Rome News Tribune, the house wasn't engulfed in flame. Most of the damage was on the inside, behind the thick haze of smoke. Officer Pilgrim had a more immediate concern. When he arrived, there was a man crumpled in the doorway of the home, his clothes still burning. His face and head were coated in blood. Two men, and at the time, Officer Pilgrim didn't know who they were, were trying to extinguish the man's burning clothing. Pilgrim joined them, searching for an outside water source that could put out the flames. Those men turned out to be good Samaritans, and neither of them knew the victim. As Pilgrim searched for water, other officers arrived, along with Cedartown Fire and Rescue. Their equipment was enough to extinguish the man's clothing. It was then that first responders discovered the source of the blood, a bullet wound to the back of his head. The fire chief, Roberts, headed into the blaze, along with two other firefighters. 
It didn't take long for them to make it through the home as they worked to extinguish the fire and checked each small room. Eventually, they found two bodies in a bedroom, a man and a woman bound with duct tape, shot, set on fire, far beyond help. As emergency personnel worked to save the burned man outside, officers made calls to the GBI and state fire investigators. An onlooker approached law enforcement and told them he'd been driving by when he saw the smoke. He said that as he'd borrowed a cell phone to call 911, things inside the house had begun to explode. He couldn't tell them anything about the surviving victim, who was in and out of consciousness and speaking in Spanish. The police report does not record what he said. The onlooker couldn't tell them about the people inside the home either. By 2 p.m. that day, the scope of the incident was becoming more clear. Police were dealing with two execution-style murders and three if the survivor didn't make it. And arson. In a rural county like Polk, you might expect that kind of violence to be a rarity. But by the end of 2003, authorities in Polk and in neighboring Floyd County would be faced with 10 murders, high-level and widespread drug crime, dozens of acts of violence, arson, burglary, and a number of homicide victims, including one they couldn't identify. According to historical weather records, it didn't rain a single time that September. Everything stayed dry and hot. The smell of smoke would have lingered on 7th Street long after the fire was out. All of what came after can connect back to that afternoon, September 16th, 2003. It's the day that the woman, the teenager who died in that fire, became the Cedartown Jane Doe. It's been 17 years and still, to the best of our knowledge, no one knows her name. To talk about the Cedartown Jane Doe and all that came before and after her death, we need to look at the area as it was in 2003, in terms of population and also crime. As you might have figured out by now, the source of the latter was the methamphetamine industry in Polk and surrounding counties, and the culture that sprang up from it. Cedartown lies northwest of Atlanta, up against eastern Alabama. When we took a riding tour through the area with members of local law enforcement, we made it across the state line in under 20 minutes. The county is small, about 311 square miles, and much of it in the sub-basin of the ACT River. Polk County is made up of the towns of Cedartown, Aragon, and Rockmart. According to the New Georgia Encyclopedia, all three are named after natural resources they produce. Cedar trees, aragonite, shale. Per the 2000 census, there were roughly 38,000 residents in all of Polk. The poverty rate for families was at roughly 11%, just above the overall rate for the state, and manufacturing was the most common job. Though the majority of Polk County residents are reported as white, the numbers are skewed by Aragon. Rockmart and Cedartown are more diverse. Polk County has its attractions. Large park, museum, children's library, and its proximity to the Silver Comet Trail. There are plenty of community activities, art fairs, readings, yearly celebrations like the Welsh Festival and the Homespun Festival. In 2019, the Polk County Chamber of Commerce's website lists a number of industries that make their home in the Valley, and it highlights civic engagement. Any county puts its best face forward. 
and there's plenty about Poke to be proud of, but there are also challenges. According to the 2012 FBI statistics, crime rates are higher in Cedartown than in comparable Northwest Georgia towns, especially property crimes, including theft. The same was true in 2003. Now, some statistics show marked improvement. For instance, there were no murders in Cedartown in 2012, quite different than 2003. When the arson and murders at 5067 Street occurred, there had already been multiple homicides in the town. Then and now, a major factor is meth. According to a 2003 National Drug Intelligence Center report, meth was the primary drug used in the region at the time of the Cedartown Jane Doe's death, and at much higher rates than were seen in metro Atlanta. The report states that meth production, distribution, and abuse are associated with violent crime in Georgia and notes that 395 meth labs were busted in 2003, up from just 29 in 1997. We wanted to know more about the effect meth had had on the community. When we conducted an interview with three members of Cedartown Law Enforcement, Assistant Special Agent in Charge Brian Johnston of the GBI, Steve Moloch, who was a detective on the case, and J.P. Foster, who was at the time with the GBI. We spoke to them about the effect that methamphetamine had had on crime. The following answer in particular comes from J.P. Foster, who actually had been an agent in the area before the drug surge. He saw the problem developing well before the fire at 506 7th Street. I will start around uh, 96, 97, and set with... Uh great degree of certainty that's backed up by case files, case numbers that didn't happen overnight as far as the methamphetamine surge. It was a gradual thing coming from cocaine to the meth. And uh, as far as how it affected law enforcement in Cedartown, the officers, the department, the agencies were overwhelmed. Not only were we dealing with property crimes, but we were dealing with the associated violence that goes along with the drug trafficking activities of meth, of methamphetamine trafficking. At that time, there really wasn't an emphasis of a concentrated cooperative effort to deal with drug trafficking in Polk County. There had been attempts previously to have a drug task force. There had been attempts to have a tri-county drug task force. For whatever reasons, those attempts had failed. But during the late 90s and early 2000s, there wasn't one per se. So uh, each department was doing their own and doing what they could to try to address the issues. Those murders reported in Polk and Floyd, as you just heard, many were drug-related. But on September 16, 2003, Local law enforcement hadn't yet proven that. The house on 7th Street was still smoking, and the investigation had just begun. Though Officer Pilgrim was first on the scene, and other officers assisted in neighborhood canvases, most of the official documents in the police file are signed by Detective Steve Moloch, who was in charge of the death investigation, and whom we interviewed. The first reports were prepared roughly 24 hours after that first 911 call. In the meantime, Cedartown police had been busy. They were tracking down a number of vital pieces of information. Who lived at the house? Whose name were the utilities in? What neighbors had seen? 
what the property owner had to say, and most importantly, who had died at the house. Two of the three victims were still, officially at least, unidentified. The first, the man who'd made it outside and had been airlifted to Grady in Atlanta, he had identification from the tip-top poultry plant in his pocket, but police had not yet verified the information printed on it. The second, the Cedartown Jane Doe, she didn't have any personal identification at all. Did she have any relationship to the third victim with whom she was found burned, bound, shot in a back bedroom? We can't find anything that explicitly connects them outside of their shared presence in the home. But then again, it's an initial report. In that report, the deceased male is listed as Cesar Juarez Vasquez. According to the official record, he was 20 years old, 5 feet tall, and 130 pounds. He lived in Cedartown. The police incident report doesn't specify how he was identified that day, but the stats and the address imply that he had a driver's license in his possession. At 1.30 p.m. on Wednesday the 17th, Detective Moloch was in the midst of writing those initial reports on the case. It was then he received a call from the front desk, alerting him that two men had come in and wanted to speak to the detective in charge. He walked out to find them waiting in the front lobby. To protect their privacy, we'll call them Javier and Joel. Javier, who was bilingual, spoke to the detective and translated for Joel. They'd come to the station because they were worried about a friend, one who'd been missing since the 16th. Javier reported that they were concerned about their friend, Alexis Torres Santiago, who, quote, had left home around 12 on 9-16-2003, driving his small white car and had not been heard from since, end quote. Through Javier, Howell told Detective Moloch that he'd checked both the local hospital and the local jail, and he hadn't been able to track down Alexis. Now, this incident report is concise, and it doesn't detail why Howell immediately thought something had gone wrong or why he was so worried. Perhaps he'd heard about the fire at 506 7th Street. Perhaps he knew more about his friend's involvement in Cedartown's underground than he let on during his discussion with the detective. All we know for sure is that Detective Moloch showed Javier and Joel the identification card that had been found on the lone survivor, that employee ID from the tip-top poultry plant. They verified that it belonged to their friend, Alexis. Even so, police couldn't offer an official identification on the spot. The detective told the two men he'd contact them when they had that information verified. Javier explained this to Joel, who in turn said he had more information to offer Cedartown police. With Javier translating, Joel explained what he knew about the house at 506 7th Street. According to Detective Moloch, Joel offered up the following information. That Joel had, quote, according to him, never visited the residence at 506 7th Street. However, he was aware that there was a man at the residence who was having young females stay there and that sexual services were being performed by these young females for a fee of $30 each to Hispanic males in the community, end quote. Now, Cedartown has, at least in recent history, been home to one of the largest Latinx communities in Georgia. In 2000, 22% of the population were, quote, Hispanic or Latino. By 2010, 
that number rose to 38%. For comparison, Georgia's overall Latinx population sits at roughly 8%. According to the Latin American Association, usually called the LAA, quote, Georgia has seen tremendous growth in its Latino population over the last few decades. From 2000 to 2010, the state's Latino population grew by 96%, end quote. And according to Pew Research Center, quote, Hispanics are the fastest growing demographic in the United States. Nationwide, the increase is not based on immigration, but rather on natural population growth. The exception to that, though, is the southeastern United States. According to the LAA, immigration rates below the Mason-Dixon line have remained strong. They explain that, quote, the Southeast housing boom and rapid economic growth prior to the Great Recession drew many Hispanic immigrants, end quote. The LAA then quotes from Pew, saying, quote, the robust conditions acted as a magnet to young male foreign-born Latinos migrating in search of economic opportunity. The Atlanta office of the LAA notes that most of Georgia's Latinx community has immigrated from Mexico, Colombia, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Okay, just a few more numbers. Of immigrants living in Georgia, the majority are naturalized citizens or eligible to become naturalized. And as of 2014, roughly 36% of Georgia's immigrants were living without documentation. An important observation included in this report is that half a million Georgia citizens have at least one undocumented relative, and those numbers are not limited to Georgia's Latinx population. And these statistics don't account for migrant workers who move through Georgia on work visas or otherwise. In previous seasons, we've discussed some of the professions, such as agriculture and construction, that draw visiting labor forces. All this to say, within the Latinx population of Cedartown, there were a number of immigrants new to America, and some of whom were living without documentation. As with people all over the United States, the reasons vary. Perhaps they entered the country through unofficial channels, arriving on one type of visa, student or work, and being unable to obtain another. Or they lost a job and thus legal status. Or they were working in an industry that wouldn't qualify for that status in the first place. As earlier statistics made clear, some members of the Cedartown community would have undocumented friends, family, or would themselves be lacking legal paperwork, which would make each interaction with law enforcement dangerous. And 2003, the year of the fire at 506 7th, was a pivotal year in immigration enforcement. It's when Homeland Security established ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Now, Americans are familiar with ICE, with deportation, with the current crisis in detainment camps. But in 2003, the acronym itself is rarely used in the case file. However, there are mentions of Homeland Security scattered across official case documents that we received. Even without widespread recognition of ICE, vulnerable persons would be very aware of post-9-11 cultural focus on immigrant communities. It could, and often would, make investigating cases more difficult. As we mentioned in the Beaufort County Jane Doe series, fear of deportation has lowered crime reporting in many communities. The media may focus more on it now, but it's not a new problem. 
When we spoke with J.P. Foster, who was with the GBI in 2003 and is now back in Cedartown working in code enforcement, he provided more context that highlighted why there would have been increased unease in the Latinx community in 2003. In 2002 and 2003, there was an officer named Douglas Damiano who targeted Latinx residents of Cedartown. According to the Rome News Tribune, Damiano would stop motorists and demand money. Per the article, quote, In early 2003, the GBI received complaints about Damiano and hired a Gordon County Sheriff's deputy of Latino descent to pose as a civilian motorist. Damiano stopped that undercover deputy and stole a marked $100 bill from him. Damiano was then arrested and resigned, end quote. JP told us that that would have certainly created fear in town. If a police officer is robbing residents, who are they supposed to turn to? Foster hopes that the eventual prosecution and sentencing of Damiano helped to address some of that trepidation. The trial itself actually received a lot of press. But it's another important factor to consider when we look at what happened that September and why the Cedartown Jane Doe has yet to be identified. At least in the beginning, the Cedartown Police Department would largely conduct their investigation into the events at 506 7th Street within the Latinx community. All three victims were Latinx, as were most of the bystanders who'd seen the smoke or called 911 or offered aid. And Howell's information that the house was operating as a brothel connected a few important pieces of information that those other residents on 7th Street had provided police. That connecting information had actually come on Tuesday, the day of the fire, while firefighters and emergency workers were still battling the blaze and trying to help that lone survivor. As they worked, officers from the Cedartown Police Department began to work their way through the neighborhood, looking for witnesses. Detective Moloch participated in the canvas, with a colleague identified in reports as Officer Jimenez. Together, they questioned neighbors and surrounding homes. And they needed information on just about everything. Who the victims were, who owned the house, if the killer or killers had been spotted. Moloch and Jimenez conducted a number of interviews. The two most important that could tie into the information that Howell had provided at the station are detailed in the police file. The following interview summary comes from our FOIA request and is read by a voice actor. We've changed the witness names recorded by Detective Moloch to protect their privacy, but all other facts are as written. Please note that language choices and terminology are verbatim from the report. On Tuesday afternoon, September 16, 2003, at approximately 1,400 hours and 30 minutes, I, Detective Moloch, along with Officer Eddie Jimenez, started a neighborhood canvas in an attempt to gather information and possible witnesses to the fire at 506 7th Street in Cedartown. At approximately 1,400 hours and 30 minutes, I spoke to Luis Gutierrez, who lives across the street from the incident location. Mr. Gutierrez stated that he works the third shift at his job, and at the time this incident took place, he was asleep. Mr. Gutierrez stated that he had been awakened by the fire engines and emergency vehicles coming to the scene. Sitting across the street from the fire location, we approached a Hispanic male who stated that his name was Marcus Hernandez. 
Mr. Hernandez stated that he was working at the residence located at 690 Slusser Avenue that belongs to his employer, Mr. Gary Smith, when he heard the sirens and realized that the house was on fire. Mr. Hernandez stated that he walked to where the fire was and then realized that the house that was burning also belonged to his employer as well. Mr. Hernandez stated that Mr. Will Johnson lives in Atlanta and owns a number of rental properties in Cedartown. Mr. Hernandez stated that his wife is also employed by Mr. Johnson and she oversees the property as a type of management agent. Mr. Hernandez is employed to do maintenance at these rental properties. Mr. Hernandez stated that he had contacted his wife via the telephone when he realized that one of Mr. Johnson's houses was burning and his wife, in turn, was attempting to locate Mr. Johnson to notify him of that fact. That other point of important information concerning the residents at 506 7th is that neighbors reported seeing at least two people, both described in the reports as Latino, bringing groceries to and from a car or sitting out on the porch. The residents didn't seem to have a car, though neighbors noticed that a, quote, newer model white Ford Explorer occasionally visited the property. None of the neighbors described seeing multiple women, although Howell's tip suggested that there would have been several in residence. Then again, if the house was operating as a brothel, the workers wouldn't have necessarily advertised the number of people who were living in the home, especially since the employees of the homeowner, if indeed the homeowner was unaware, were living right across the street. How much the homeowner actually knew is unclear. Based on our conversations with police, it's likely that he hadn't visited the property in person, that he'd bought the house with tenants in place and simply continued the lease. When we spoke to Cedartown law enforcement about the house at 5067th and whether neighbors would have been aware of any activity, J.P. Foster and Steve Moloch explained its layout. Hey, this is J.P. Foster again. Uh, one thing that we probably need to touch on is uh, I think you asked when we were riding around last week, question of was it was it obvious that this was a brothel? And and I think we'll we'll have to say no to that because uh, those houses down in the Goodyear Village they have a back alley, and anyone going or coming uh, could easily have come down that back alley, pulled into the backyard of uh, the Seventh Street location entered, conducted their business, and then left going out the back uh, and back in two different directions down the alley. So it's not like uh, the neighbors all up and down the street knew what was going on at that location, nor did the police at that time. So I think what Steve was Steve mentioned uh, was, was very important in that the, the way that the neighborhood was blanketed and canvassed and the interviews that were done um and some of those had to do with pressure put on individuals in drug locations all throughout that village started providing intelligence information that identified it as a brothel so uh, to answer your question did we have intelligence about that particular location prior to these murders no no we didn't by Thursday, the 18th of September, two days after the fire, Cedartown police were working several trails. Though there had been a tentative identification of the survivor who remained in critical condition, even that would be called into question. 
Late on the evening of the 18th, another group of men had come into the police station, also asking about the surviving victim of the attack. This time, there were three people, a friend acting as a translator and two men who said they were brothers of a man who'd been hospitalized after an accident. They were trying to get more information about their sibling and where he might be. When Detective Moloch arrived, it was after 10 p.m. and he hadn't been in the station. He asked for their names and ID. One of the brothers, who we'll call Vicente, produced an international driver's license. Neither his brother, Alfonso, or their translator, Nico, had identification. Nico told Detective Moloch that they were all from Mexico and were currently working together in Alabama. Apparently, on Wednesday the 17th, the brothers had received a phone call from a woman they knew to be a friend of their brother. She said their brother, Arturo Torres Ventura, had been hurt and was in a local hospital. The brothers didn't know her name, just that she had hired Arturo to come to Cedartown and work for her. He'd actually done so before, and this time he'd left Montgomery about three months ago to help her with her business in Cedartown. What business? Detective Moloch asked. There was a pause. Then the brother spoke, and Nico translated. According to the police report, Moloch was told, and again this is the language of the record, quote, that Arturo was a caretaker or controller of prostitutes that the female caller would bring to Cedartown and drop off at the house on 7th Street. Apparently, the woman had asked the brothers to call her when they found out more about Arturo's condition. The brothers gave the detective a note that included two phone numbers, directions to the house on 7th Street, and the phrase, quote, Bose de Taxi Los Casas de las Flores. The detective showed the brothers pictures of the surviving victim, ones taken at the crime scene, just before he was airlifted to Grady. They positively identified him as their brother and noted that they recognized the ring that he was wearing. So, two sets of men in two days all coming in, concerned about the same man, who they knew by different names. It's never explained in the file or in subsequent news coverage, but our best guess is that Arturo was carrying false ID, or that he'd used a false name at Tip Top Poultry, if he'd actually worked there, that listed him as Alexis Torres Santiago. His friends, the ones who'd come in first to the station, certainly knew him by that name, or at least they knew he used it. From this point on in the files, the victim is known as Arturo Torres Ventura. So, by Thursday night, the 18th, one victim had been identified twice. Arturo remained in critical condition at Grady, and he was still unconscious. At this point in the file, the detective notes that the other two victims had not been positively identified, but as we told you, we know that the other man was eventually ID'd as Cesar Juarez Vasquez. We were able to find an article from December of 2003 in the Rome News Tribune, which reported that Cesar's family, who were local, had confirmed him as the third victim. At this point in the investigation, the middle of September 2003, the Cedartown Police Department's efforts were concentrated on several key paths. Identifying who actually lived in the house and in whose name the utilities had been obtained. Trying to identify the white car that had been seen in the driveway searching the house, and looking into individuals known to be involved in the sex trade in Polk County, which, in this instance, sometimes meant involvement in the meth trade, too. 
These efforts would lead them to speak to scores of people in and around Cedartown, so many that during our research, we had to create multiple charts to keep track of everyone they contacted. We'll walk you through the most important events. Since many of them happened concurrently or were recorded out of order, we'll go through them based on case development rather than strict timeline. Police spoke to local business owners and identified that one or more people had been handing out business cards for a taxi service, listing the same number that had been given to Arturo's brothers. Other cards, also printed in Spanish, had circulated, advertising a company closed for cowboys with a number of another brothel printed on the back. Through research into the white Ford Explorer, Trying to identify the specific vehicle and its owner, investigators began a long and winding path through dozens of subjects. They learned, for instance, that the gas utility at 5067th had been established under the name of a man who'd never lived there. It seems that an old roommate had actually borrowed his identity to arrange for that service. And that same roommate also owned a white Ford Explorer which had been bought from a small car lot, Amigo Car Sales, in Marietta, Georgia. That's a suburb of Atlanta, about an hour's drive from Cedartown. The car had been sold and resold among a group of friends, including the man who'd established the gas at 5067th Street. In fact, right after the crime, it was said that he had been frantic, wanting to sell the Explorer and return to Mexico. Police never tracked him down. We don't know the full extent of his involvement at 5067th Street. He never comes up in the local reporting or in the file again. He was not listed as a conspirator. Maybe he was just frightened. If he'd lived or worked at the house and heard what happened, he'd be smart to get as far away as possible and quickly. However, there was plenty of other information to sort through. It was evident that 5067th Street wasn't the only brothel in the area. Remember the woman, the one who called Arturo's brothers and told them that he was in the hospital, who was said to manage brothels and had employed Arturo as a sort of caretaker? Via weeks of cell phone examination and interviews, Cedartown identified the woman who'd made the call. Her name was Liz Lina Caro Rodriguez, though she also went by the alias Maria Hernandez, which was a family name, and she's referred to as both throughout various records. Her family had immigrated from Colombia and then settled in Polk County. Though she was very young, she had employed Arturo and a number of other men on a regular basis. She was running her own business, a series of brothels operating in suburban homes in northwest Georgia. Liz had a number of contacts in Alabama, which is how she recruited Arturo and the other men to come to Georgia and work for her. Their roles continue to be described as caretaker and controller in the documents, and it's unclear whether they were there to serve as protection, to make sure clients paid, to maintain order in the house, or all of the above. According to one of Liz's employees, the men paid themselves $300 a week, and per the reports, Liz would come by and pick up an $800 cut every week. Most of the women who worked in the homes were brought into town by Liz and her associates. Many came up via Mexico, either as a point of origin or on their way from other countries in Central and South America. The majority stayed for short work trips of a few weeks or months and could earn several hundred dollars to upwards of a thousand dollars a week. The numbers quoted by Arturo's brothers were accurate. 
The sex workers charged $30 per customer, which was split with the house. One woman questioned by Cedartown police said she'd come into town specifically to earn money for an operation for her child and that she planned to return home with her split of the profits. Other women visited from neighboring states or other parts of Georgia. No matter where they came from, they didn't stay in one residence long. After a week or two, Liz and her associates would drive women from one house to another. Her connections stretched across those case files, creating a complex web of telephone calls with others involved in the case, like the man who sold his truck and ran right after the fire, or some of the other men who'd been employed at 506 7th. Most of the women who worked for Liz, they were undocumented, and some of the men were too. Liz was arrested in November of 2003 while driving a new worker to a home in Rome, Georgia. That's a city in Floyd County, which is adjacent to Polk, and saw many of the same problems. Now, sex work and drugs are definitely not synonymous, and we don't want to imply that. But it seems that, at least in Polk and Floyd, drugs were being sold out of some of these brothels. That, coupled with the criminalization of sex work and the undocumented status of the workers, created layers of danger for those who were working out of the homes. Though Liz's specific charges were related to her activities with, quote, illegal aliens, others in the same circles were charged with the distribution of meth, some of which was purchased at the brothels by the sex workers' customers. Some, including Liz, were also charged with procurement and, quote, keeping a house of prostitution. Some were deported. Others served jail or prison time in the United States. Some of the women, whose statements implied that they were consent sex workers, also faced charges and or deportation. That would include some workers who'd long made their home in the United States. Though Liz's name was not on any bills at the house at 5067th and she didn't live there, she was connected to the business. She had employed at least one man, Arturo Torres, the lone survivor of the attack. If she knew him, then she should have known or known of the young woman who was murdered that September in 2003. She didn't supply any helpful information. But over the next few months, into the new year of 2004, law enforcement would receive several tips as to the identity of the Cedartown Jane Doe. And they'd also begin to piece together who committed the crimes at 5067th Street and why. By November of 2003, the double murder had become triple. Arturo Torres Ventura died at Grady Hospital without ever regaining consciousness. Meanwhile, across Northwest Georgia, a growing syndicate, all players in the methamphetamine business, were becoming increasingly violent. All those homicides in Floyd and Polk, as investigators dug into the case at 5067th, the connections between those murders and others in the county grew increasingly clear. Next time on The Fall Line, we delve into how the case was closed, learn about a drug ring in northwest Georgia, and why the Cedartown Doe remains unidentified. We'll also take a look at consent migrant sex work, the intersections of issues those workers face, and how it all converged, and how and why the problems have not necessarily improved today. Again, we want to offer a description of the victim. The Cedartown Jane Doe was a young woman of about 17 or 18, though she could have been as young as 15 years old. She was Latina, 
She was described as five foot one and approximately 100 pounds. She had long black hair, brown eyes, and wore gold stud earrings. If you have information regarding the Cedartown Jane Doe, please contact the GBI at 404-270-8151 or the Cedartown Police Department at 770-748-4123. We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or through PayPal. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks, as always, to Angie Dodd. Thanks to Aaron Bowen and Nancy Rivera for translation assistance. The follow line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Research written and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon with special content advisement by Professor Marcella Fuentes. Theme music is by RJR. Shay Ryan of All Crime No Cattle was kind enough to offer his voice acting skills this episode. Be sure to check out the podcast he and his wife Erin put out. All Crime No Cattle focuses on crimes that take place in Texas, and it's a favorite of ours. If you'd like some Fall Line merchandise, you can find it in the Exactly Right Pod Swag store. A portion of our merch proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Dope Project. Be sure to check out our show on Stitcher Premium, where you can hear ad-free versions of our episodes and get access to early release standalone episodes and miniseries. You can use our code LINE, L-I-N-E, to try out Stitcher Premium free for a month. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of this story.